10 years ago, our ratio of CD sales to LP sales was 80 to 90% CDs to LPs, and now it's completely reversed. Uh, depending on whether you're talking units or dollars, it's, it's 80 to 90% LPs to CDs now. Welcome to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. That's John T. Coons, owner of Waterloo Records in Austin, maybe the best record store in the United States, and still at it after 40 years. We last left the vinyl discussion on Musonomics in 2018 on our episode, The Vinyl Resurrection. Back then, vinyl sales were up to $400 million, according to the RIAA. Fast forward to 2022, and revenues from vinyl records grew 17% over the previous year to $1.2 billion, the 16th consecutive year of growth, and accounted for 71% of physical format revenues. For the first time since 1987, vinyl albums outsold CDs and units, 41 million versus 33 million, according to the RIAA. That impressive growth, both on the audience side, in addition to continued revenue growth, piqued our curiosity to revisit the present and future of vinyl. We learned in 2018 that a younger audience for vinyl was developing, along with a more traditional, nostalgic consumer, but limited manufacturing plants and inventory presented a real challenge to the format. Back then, we spoke with Eric Astor of Furnace Record Pressing. The industry needs as much capacity as we can get. I think it's better for the industry... Um, for new plants to go online and for either new or old machines to be uh, set up because that creates uh, a shorter lead time. I think it also allows, you know, more records to get in the marketplace and, you know, it, it basically creates a much more healthy market both for labels, bands, and also for the pressing plants. Metallica has been selling so many vinyl records that last week the band bought a majority stake in Furnace, which had been pressing Metallica's records for years. Last year, Metallica sold 387,000 vinyl albums, according to Billboard data. The purchase price wasn't disclosed. Members of Metallica will now sit on Furnace's board. With a growing audience and impressive sales, a steady rise, and recognition of Record Store Day and more streamlined manufacturing systems in place, vinyl records are making more than beautiful music in the record business in 2023. So, in this episode, we take another look at where we are at with vinyl, and we'll visit a group of experts and entrepreneurs actively involved in the business of vinyl. John T. Coons is the owner of Waterloo Records, an Austin institution connecting bands and fans at Austin's best record store since 1982. A purveyor of musical culture, Waterloo has hosted thousands of live performances. Lots of musicians have worked there, too. Waterloo supports Austin artists like Marsha Ball and Asleep at the Wheel, Gary Clark Jr., Ray Wiley Hubbard, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, Jerry Jeff Walker, Los Lonely Boys, and Willie Nelson, among many, many more. John Coons has seen a lot of things, including now the resurgence of vinyl. Would the John Coons of 2012, 2013 have been surprised by that? Absolutely. Uh, I was very surprised. I mean, I, I knew that LPs were never going to go away. And I knew that um, there were a lot of people discovering vinyl 15, 12 years ago but I never expected it to be something that was going to make the younger generation coming up that thought all music should be free, ready to spend 15 to 20 bucks for a record. And now a single record can run 20 to 30 bucks. 
And it's quite a shift from as far as that young music lover is concerned to go from getting music for free just because you're willing to watch ads or paying a monthly subscription to actually wanting to support the artists that are making that music that that's enriching your life in such a big way. And also knowing that you you own this and it isn't something that uh, a service can yank away from you at their whim. What else about the vinyl package do you think is so compelling for today's vinyl buyers? The portability of that digital music in whatever form it's in is uh, a really great thing, and we all love having that. But sitting down and actually paying attention to what your favorite musicians created for you as as a unified album, a collection of their songs, that's totally giving yourself to that for that 45 minutes or whatever the case may be that is the same as sitting down and reading a book or sitting down and watching a movie and um, it really is immersing yourself in what the the band wanted you to experience I know that everybody goes to Waterloo, young people and uh, maybe people their their parents' age. Are you seeing adults, too, who maybe abandoned, you know, the format over the last couple of decades come back to vinyl? You know, talking about the different generations, the thing that I find most gratifying is that vinyl is the best generation bridge I have ever seen when... A kid who is, you know, still at that age where they're they're rebelling against everything because that's what kids are supposed to do. And all of a sudden they find out uh, grandpa has all the Led Zeppelin records or grandma saw James Brown live in concert. And so all of a sudden it isn't the, these, you know, old gray haired people that, you know, maybe take a little bit too long to get in and out of the car, as far as the kids are concerned, are finding out that, you know, oh my gosh, you actually went to a James Brown concert and you saw him twice live in concert. How can that be? Tell me all about it. And then music is doing what it's supposed to do. It's bringing people together and getting rid of the barriers that existed between those generations. And the kids are developing a newfound respect for their elders because of the music that they love and enjoyed uh, in their youth, and they get a great education out of it. Russ Krupnik is managing partner of Music Watch. He works with major labels, trade associations, and streaming and technology companies to understand trends in consumer behavior. Why is vinyl still growing so rapidly? It's a complex question that I'll try to make pretty simple. I think one thing that's happened over the last decade is that the base of vinyl buyers has become much more diverse than it was, you know, back when, back in the days when it was $14 million business. So A, we see a lot of diversity, which we can delve into in a second. B, I think that there are more and more artists supporting the format over the years and fans are recognizing that and paying it back in the form of purchasing. And, you know, frankly, I think there's a, a more creativity in the vinyl sector than there had been in a very long time. Creativity in what regard? In terms of the way things like packaging and artwork, I mean, we, we've, in a sense, we've gone back and, and probably even surpassed 
uh, the vinyl that I grew up with in the in the 70s in terms of the way that the, the format is put together. Let's talk about the people, though. Who who is buying it? How do you think about the vinyl buying community? Yeah, I, I think there's this image of a, kind of an old dude with silver hair and a ponytail as the vinyl buyer. And, you know, he, he listens to Mingus or Creedence Clearwater Revival and, and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, the, the amount of diversity in the vinyl format is absolutely staggering. The gender split, for example, there are almost as many women buying vinyl as there are men. Uh, there are probably more younger people buying vinyl in the past couple of years uh, as there are uh, older folks. Uh, the Hispanic population uh, over-indexes or over-purchases, over-punches for their population uh, when it comes to vinyl. So, you know, when you take a look at all of these demographics, I would say of, you know, of of many of the music formats, it's probably the most diverse. And when you look at them in the aggregate, at least here in the United States, how many are there, do you estimate? We're closing in on about uh, 19 million vinyl buyers, if you take a look at both the the new and the, uh, the used sector. Wow. And other than age and location and maybe genre preference, how do you segment the buying behavior of the different kinds of vinyl buyers, whether they're young or old or wherever they live? There are certain sectors of of vinyl buyers who you could take away everything that they own except their music, except their vinyl records. There are other other vinyl buyers who, uh, as you pointed out, for them, it's more like merch. It's more like expressing fanship, and music perhaps is not as central to their life. So there's that kind of psychographic push to it. There's also kind of interest in the content itself. You know, we think of younger people just buying BTS or Taylor Swift or Harry Styles, but there's a lot of younger people who are going deeper and deeper into the catalog. They're buying, they're actually rebuying some of the same albums that their mom and dad or, or even their grandparents may have had, and they're buying into genres that we don't typically think of when it comes to younger people. You know, besides hip-hop, they're buying classic rock, they're buying jazz, they're buying blues. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat, demographically, psychographically, what they're interested in 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 purchasing, Um, and and frankly, why they buy. You know, are they buying it... uh, are they buying it to really listen to because of the sound quality, or are they buying it more as a collectible to display? And what's the answer? <laughs> uh, the, the answer is yes to all. I mean, when, when, when you take a look at um, – I'll give you a couple examples of some of the segments that we came up with. Uh, there's kind of this, this group that we call the, the veteran vinyl buyers. There are about one in four vinyl buyers. Um, they've been buying for a long time, at least – six or more years and their music hedonists. I mean, they're, they're listening to vinyl. They're listening to Sirius. They're listening to CDs. They're listening to broad. I mean, they listen to any way they can consume music. Um, they do. And, and obviously the listening experience is very important to them. You know, on the other hand, you take um, another group that we call new occasionals and they're obviously younger. They've started buying within the past couple of years. Uh, when it comes to music habits, they, they're streamers and they're on TikTok. Uh, for them, 
it, it is more of a merch experience. They're much more likely to be um, displaying it and not necessarily listening to it. And they're more likely to be buying current releases than perhaps going, uh, you know, d- deeper into the uh, the boxes. How does streaming and social media fit amongst the vinyl buying community? It's especially strong for discovery of vinyl. For example, uh, especially among the younger segment, they'll hear something from an artist that they like on streaming. uh, And then either because they think listening to the album is important or ownership is important or to reward that artist, uh, they will go out and actually buy the album. If you take a look at social, for example, uh, a lot of folks are using discovery, a social as a discovery mode. And they're actually the number one person that they want to hear from in terms of discovering are actually music artists and music influencers. So, you know, they're really interested in hearing, hey, this is a release that's coming out or somebody talking about the album and what went into producing it. So, um you know, both streaming and social, very important when it comes to discovery as well as promotion of vinyl. They're, they're kind of, you know, symbiotic, sympathetic with one another. As I understand it, not all vinyl records are being opened and played on turntables. Some people are just collecting them and maybe even putting them on the wall. Who are those people? They tend to be younger. If you take a look, for example, without getting into, you know, too deep into numbers, if you take a look at the 13 to 24, just generally that falls into Gen Z, uh, about one in four of the albums that they buy never make it to a turntable. You know, they're just using it for a display. Uh, I guess the flip side of that is to say that three out of four of them actually do eventually, they are buying them to listen to them or both listen and, and display them. So, but once you get into the older groups and especially as you start to get into folks who are those veteran buyers or, or a group that's an audiophile, you know, over 90% of what they're buying is actually getting listened to. How important is Record Store Day then in drawing people into stores and driving purchase behavior? I think one of the uh, surprising and surprising in a good way uh, findings of the study was we asked a lot of questions about Record Store Day and 60% of vinyl buyers actually had some awareness which is terrific. They they had heard of Record Store Day or they had actually gone and purchased something uh, related to Record Store Day. Generally speaking, what we were impressed by is the amount of activation that you saw uh, from Record Store Day. Everything from as soon as somebody became aware of Record Store Day, they were going in and doing something on a pre-sale. Uh, a very high number of people going into stores or shopping online on record store day. And I had this experience myself. I was in, in Grimey's um, after the, the Music Biz convention last year, uh, went into Grimey's and actually wound up buying two record store day exclusives uh, after record store day. And that's actually not uncommon. It's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. You get a lot of awareness and, and interest before you get purchasing day of and then you get some some additional exhaust purchasing afterwards. Speaking of uh, the gift that keeps on giving, yeah, I remember long ago a campaign that the uh, record industry did to remind people to give the gift of music. This is a long time ago, right? In the in the land before streaming, it's impossible to gift someone a uh, a stream of something. 
How important is gifting, buying things with the intention of uh, giving them to somebody? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember in kind of in peak CD days, about one in three CDs were actually um, were actually given it as a gift. And we still we don't see those kinds of levels with vinyl, but we are we are absolutely still seeing. I would say probably somewhere in the vicinity of ten to twenty percent of vinyl being purchased as a gift. And you know, one of the wonderful things about the releases that are targeted to younger people in particular. Um, is that, you know, it gives mom and dad used to be able to give them CDs for, for the holidays. You know, now it gives them the chance to go and actually give them an album. Uh, yes, gifting is still important. Whether people are buying vinyl records for themselves or to give as a gift, how do they feel about price and value? Uh the value numbers were very strong. What we asked consumers, what do you think of the value of the vinyl that you're buying? And overwhelmingly, they, they thought that it was either a very good or an excellent value. So, you know, despite the, the premium price that vinyl commands, uh, the value proposition is there. We also asked some questions and we have to be careful in, in our industry, in particular, talking about specific prices for all, all of the reasons that all of your listeners will know. Uh, but I'll just say generally, um, vinyl buyers are willing to pay a premium to get something that they like from an artist that they like that has what they would consider to be premium features. So pricing Pricing within reason should not be a barrier uh, to attracting uh, vinyl buyers. The last time we looked at vinyl on the podcast, we were looking at some of the issues that there were in the supply chain, in particular on the manufacturing end, and there just weren't enough vinyl presses around to satisfy the demand, particularly from uh, independent labels who were having a really hard time getting time on the vinyl presses to get their uh, their records uh, scheduled and manufactured and and sent to the stores on time what issues do you see if any that the industry needs to handle in order to ensure future growth the research showed us that there is a strong commitment to purchasing the format and I think if you dial back to what we were talking about in terms of segments, if you take a look at the, the long-term hardcore vinyl buyer, they'll always find something to buy, you know, whether it's a, another record store day exclusive or whether it's something kind of deeper in the bin. So I, I'm a little less concerned about let's say that, you know, 70% of, of buyers who are going to be buying vinyl for the foreseeable future. I think where the supply chain issues, you know, come in are for the folks who are maybe less committed. And those are the, one that the ones that the industry has to work a little bit harder to keep coming into the stores or shopping in line or, or being aware. So, you know, anytime that the supply chain gets clogged up and we can't get product out that appeals to that 30 percent, that's what we should be concerned about is making sure that there's enough product to keep maybe the less committed buyer um, shopping for vinyl. Russ, is it counterintuitive at all to look back over the last 15 or so years, in particular when vinyl was still, you know, at that point pretty much given up for dead, as every other format of recorded music over the last century 
had been once the new format came in to take its place and replace it in the hearts and minds of the people who love to buy and collect music. We've gone from vinyl being on life support to now being a couple of billion dollar business at retail. Can vinyl continue to grow at the rates that we have seen over the last several years? Like a lot of other things, vinyl experienced a bit of a COVID, more than a bit, but a, a fairly strong kind of COVID bump. Whereas two years ago, we were looking at at a sales increase of something like 50% year over year, which was phenomenal. And this year, things came down to earth a little bit. I think the, the Luminate numbers were up something like 4%. Uh, and of course, everybody starts going, well, the, the sky is falling. I don't look at, that, at it this way. As I said, at least when you survey vinyl buyers, there's a high level of commitment to buying the format Back in 2016, vinyl growth was slowed by the lack of manufacturing presses available. This limited the number of albums actually coming out, especially for independent artists. Lots of artists and bands had to wait upwards of a year to have their albums pressed, many times having a huge impact on how these groups earned income, especially when they were on the road having less to sell at their merch booth, not to mention missing out on Record Store Day and other retail opportunities. As time went on, there were more and more record pressing plants popping up, but even with additional manufacturing capacity, independent artists and bands are still lagging behind the larger acts in music. Jean Pet is the co-owner of Out of Wax, a new vinyl pressing company in Minneapolis. He's a data scientist at NYU by day and a grad student at NYU Music Business by night. We asked John why he wanted to get into the vinyl pressing business. I am a collector. I've always been a collector of things since birth. Um, it's an outlet for compulsive behavior, I think. I started with records when I was about 13, uh, when I realized upon going deep into an artist's catalog, there were things that I couldn't get without buying records. Uh, specifically, this was when Nirvana broke and I wanted to get everything. Uh, and I went into compilations and found some of their things that were just on sub pop. And from that, I found other bands, which to my surprise had albums that only existed on vinyl. So since then, I've been a collector my entire adult life, and I love the medium and have always tried to figure out where I fit in this industry. And this opportunity came up. My sister and I were talking about things over uh, the pandemic. She ran a business where her business entirely dried up when everything locked down. And she asked me if I'd ever thought about opening a record pressing plant. And I said, yes. Of course. Wait, wait. So I could understand why as somebody who collected uh, things, vinyl especially, and other ephemera from your fanboy uh, youth during, you know, the grunge time in the, the early 90s, maybe, someone else might say, oh, I'm going to open a, a record store. Uh that's not what your sister asked you. Why did she ask if you had thought about opening up a record pressing plant? I think she was thinking about contributing to the market itself. She thought about giving back into the community. Uh, she is a musician. Our other partner is a musician as well. I'm not. I wish I were. But that was the thinking, I believe, that 
she she just wondered how we could contribute directly to the industry and make something. Admittedly, we didn't know how extensive this would really be. I had an opportunity to buy a manual record press several years ago for about $10,000. And in my brain, it was great. I can do this out of my garage and set something up. That's not how this works. It is a full-scale factory. Uh, and it takes a, a pretty hefty investment. In past episodes of this podcast, we've looked at some of the issues in in the supply chain, the fact that at least at various points along the way over the last half dozen years or so, as the vinyl boom has boomed, that uh, there have been capacity issues, in particular with independent labels and bands being able to get their releases scheduled. Did your decision to, uh, you know, jump into this with both feet and a substantial investment in time and money have anything to do with solving that, you know, supply chain capacity issue? Absolutely. We are all, all of our owners are independent minded. We all come out of the punk and DIY types of communities in music and have a strong sense that independent labels and artists always get the short end of the stick. So we are directly targeting them as our customer base. We're using manual record presses, which are cater to more small batch customized orders. And that's the indie labels and artists. Where are you at now in the process? What kind of a machine did you buy? I mean, did you buy something that was, you know, a 60-year-old vintage press that required a great deal of maintenance in order to get up and running from someplace in Eastern Europe? Or did you get one of these newer things? What is the uh, equipment that you're starting with and how did you find it? We went with the new equipment. Uh, the fact that new companies are producing record-making equipment now was a big draw for us. We wanted to get new equipment in to minimize downtime. So we went with the new-built manual presses, which are being made in Germany. They're based on old designs. Uh, They were called well-built many years ago, but they're updated with computer controls. And we have them. We have all of our equipment now. We have our building as of today. And we are a couple of months away from being fully operational. What kind of capacity are you going to be able to do with with this gear that you now have? We should be able to have a capacity of around 800 to 1,000 in a regular eight-hour shift. We did size our equipment so that we could expand and add capacity over time, but we're looking to solve the small batch independent label demand. And how will your customers, whether they are independent labels or bands, learn that you exist? How are you going to market your new capacity? It doesn't take much marketing. We have a waiting list of about 15 to 20 labels just people that we know from our history in the industry waiting for us to be ready to go. Uh, the, the demand so vastly outweighs the capacity right now that there's no competition for business. Wow. 
uh, it sounds like you might have potential to uh, grow additional capacity once you get going. That's the idea. We hope to. We're starting with a single shift in two presses and have the capacity to expand to multiple shifts per day and additional machines in the near future. Talk a little bit about your mission. What is it about this that really captured your imagination? And what do you hope for the future for you in this business? My goal in this industry is and has always been to level the playing field for independent players. I fight for the underdog and always will. And I hope that this is the first step toward my ability to make a serious impact on people's lives as independent artists and labels. Larry Jaffe is the author of Record Store Day, the most improbable comeback of the 21st century. A great read about the inside story on how Record Store Day managed to help revive the vinyl format from oblivion over the past 15 years, with some of the biggest artists jumping at the chance to support independent record stores. This alliance and renewed camaraderie between artists and record stores set in motion the world's largest annual music retail event, Record Store Day. And Gina Williams is a three-decade veteran in the music business. She's director, independent retail and vinyl marketing at Warner Music Group. Gina is also an avid music fan and collector of vinyl. So much has been written, including the wonderful book by you, Larry, on Record Store Day, about the vinyl resurrection. How would you characterize the state of vinyl as we know it today? How much gas is left in the tank, do you think? Well, first of all, I think it's the most improbable comeback of the 21st century. I think there is gas in the tank. I think people have jumped on this bandwagon for the last 15 years, cuts across all demographics, all age groups. And once you get the bug, you really get addicted. The industry has had challenges, especially in the last three or four years, you know, in terms of uh, supply chain, raw materials, costs. But it's shown great resiliency. In fact, the consumer demand has been, had been so great that there were wait times as much as 10 months after you would put in a order. That's been dramatically cut in, in just the past few months. Large pressing plants have expanded their capacities and new ones all over the world are cropping up. How much growth is left in the phoenix that is... Uh, the resurrection of of the vinyl business. I do have one stat that that kind of can pinpoint like where we're at. It's a study done by Music Watch for Record Industry Association of America. So, for example, in 2005, vinyl revenues were 14 million. In 2005, in 2021, one billion. And there is not a sign of it slowing down. So, I think that the future looks bright. Two main reasons is, like Larry said, there's not just one group of of people driving this. So it's a really healthy obsession for various different reasons. So any one of those reasons go away, there's more of them. Gina, what do you think? What's different about the physical experience of making or putting on and listening to vinyl today, if anything, in your mind? You know, you hear a lot of talk these days about doing things intentionally, you know, stopping and you know, kind of realizing the moment you're in and having the moment. Like, um, I liken it to, you know, I also pour over coffee. Some some days I drink an instant coffee, you know, other days I pour over. So it's kind of like if you want to have a moment, if you've got time, you know, it's just more, it's, 
it, frankly, it's bespoke. It's custom. It's more listening to it at least one side in its entirety, you know, than track by track as well. But I, I think mainly it's intentional. You're going to set that needle down. You're going to have a moment and you can't go far because you're going to have to pick it up, you know, at the end of the record. So it kind of forces you to sit there and listen to it, you know, rather than kind of walk around. Also on the packaging side now, the paper is much thicker. It's glossier. I think the um, designers and art directors are getting a lot more creative in the possibilities. That's why I especially like record store day releases because it's a new spin on an old motif to some extent. Artwork is huge. You know, just what Larry said, artwork is a huge driver. It's probably the number one driver above sound um, for sure, because sound is pretty relative and what sounds good to somebody at one moment, like that's, totally relative subjective yeah it's more of a it's a moment and and then reading the lyrics which spotify is obviously catching up on which is awesome like i love that i knew that that would happen but it's still a place where you can sit down and read the lyrics and i'm often wrong on lyrics in the luminate year-end report there was one statistic about vinyl that really stood out for me. About half of the vinyl purchases last year were made by people who didn't own a turntable. What about vinyl as an expression of fandom, as a physical manifestation of their fandom? Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen it too. I mean, it's it's similar to when DVDs first, and CDs for that matter, first came on the market. You wore your tastes on your shelves and... You know, especially if it was like a social party type of situation, people would just check out the collection. And I think vinyl especially is like that. As far as the, the, the 50 percent, I find that hard to believe. The question I have is, were those people buying a gift for somebody else? So maybe that's why they didn't have a turntable themselves. The segment of vinyl consumers that actually is two times more likely to buy a record and never listen to it are audiophiles. It's not fandom reasons, and it's not because they don't have a turntable. It's because audiophiles, I mean, they collect things. They're, they're going to have seven copies of one record because somebody else cut this one. Um, so I thought that was hilarious, that audiophiles are the main driver of buying something and not listening to it. But I do think it's probably less than 50% now, but maybe yeah. it was because that I've heard that 50% before. But um, I work for distribution. If you bought it, I don't care what you do with it. Thank you very much for buying it. But most people that do buy it do end up getting a turntable. And then to justify that cost, they buy more um, as well. So I think that that group is getting smaller. But absolutely, it's, it's a form of merch. Like, absolutely not just a sound carrier. I think that that's the one thing that's kind of sticking out about vinyl above CDs or cassettes. It's not just a sound carrier to people. You know, they know about Spotify. They know that, you know, the artists are only getting pennies. A lot of consumers just want to support the artist. You know, mm. I've always bought more from an artist at a merch counter at a show because distribution doesn't take a bite of that. <laughs> um, so the bands that I like the most, I mean, I like to give them my cash at a show. Um, you know, if you really want to support artists, pay for Spotify and buy a shirt at a show. I know that for uh, all Record Store Day releases, that those are all limited edition, and when they're gone, they're gone. Is there a general perception, and whether it's based in reality or not, that for many titles that are being pressed today on vinyl, that uh, that they are limited in number, 
unlike you know the music that we stream which is sort of you know infinitely available and ubiquitous by definition i think it does on record store day but also there are different categories of record store day releases and some of them do come out on a wider um distribution a year later gina probably knows even less than that it depends on the the album you know and then there are they call the record store day exclusives, which it's been predetermined that that's the only place you can get it, only time you can get it. You know, even though sometimes that exclusive, you know, is an exclusive because it's an exclusive color, and we're going to make an exclusive of a different color in two years, there's still going to be an appetite for that exclusive in a different color in two years. Like it's all a, you know, again, a lot of this is probably perception, marketing, fear of missing out. You don't know we're going to put it out in a different color a year from now, or you probably do if you follow anything that any of us do. Um, but there's just demand for it. And as long as, as long as we get consumers buying this, we're going to do that. So there are literally so many exclusive versions of one album. When you look at the exclusive colors, it's maddening. It's maddening to a retailer. It's maddening to a consumer. It's maddening to me. But I, the reason it hasn't stopped is because no one has stopped buying it because there's too many colors of one, of, of rumors. No, no, nobody has stopped buying rumors yet. I know that Record Store Day is now a global phenomenon, almost every place in the world. And I wonder to what degree Record Store Day is making an impact in vinyl sales in emerging markets, less developed markets than, say, the U.S., the U.K., and Western Europe. Well, I think that's where some of the growth might come, especially in a continent like South America, for example, you know, a country like Brazil. There are some plants in South America, not many, but um, I, I think it, it's another sign, getting back to one of your original questions, that there's still legs on this business. Africa's complete frontier. There are, Asia is, is, is rapidly catching up in terms of pressing plants. Are we seeing the turntable business, for example, and the stereo component business also grow at a rate that, you know, correlates closely with the growth of vinyl sales? Yes, it's, I think it's one of our barometers that kind of tells us this still has a lot of legs is every time a store gets a stack of Audio Technica or Crosley's and, you know, I can get into there's a turntable for every person, every price point. You know, as long as the stores are selling out of those, we know. Like, someone just sold a turntable today. You know what that means? They need records to play on it. It's safe to say that vinyl is no passing fad at this point in time. 16 years of continued unit and revenue growth has earned vinyl its place in the music business revenue pie. For how long will vinyl continue its revenue growth? Will the supply chain catch up and get ahead of demand? Will sales of legacy titles ever flatten? Will fear of missing out still be a valid driver of purchase behavior for vinyl consumers? Will Record Store Day sustain its magic touch? We'll just have to wait and see how the B-side plays out. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. With many thanks to our guests, John T. Coons, Russ Kropnick, John Pett, Gina Williams, and Larry Jaffe. 
technical and audio production this episode from Alfonso Hernandez and Alex Blasek, with editorial production by Joseph Vela for the NYU Steinhardt Music Business Program. If you like what you heard on this episode of Musonomics, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It only takes a minute, and it's super important in helping new listeners find our podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Musonomics. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.